Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Welcome to Impact the World. And this episode, I got to speak via Zoom to Ian Levanzant, the New York Times bestselling author and one of America's most sought after speakers, coaches, highly socially engaged and Emmy award winning for her show, Ianla Fix My Life. I was really, really excited to speak to Ianla because I have admired and received so much goodness from her over the years in so many different ways. And the timing of the episode was very interesting. We'd had it booked for many weeks. And the day that we recorded, it had been a few days before that George Floyd had been murdered. And it was going to be the first day of the protests that we then saw take place for over a week in America. So it was a very charged time. And for that reason, it, it was the perfect time to get Ianla's take on the healing that we are in and how to best take care of yourself while you are going through this, but also how to affect change. So it was perfectly timed and we hope you enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Ianla Van Zandt and you can find more of Ianla at her website, ianla.com. Ianla, welcome. And before we dive into the interview, the thing I would like to just say and reflect to you, I think I probably first saw you on a screen about 15, 15 some years ago. And you know how people influence you and they educate you and they create things in the world that you're grateful to them for. I mean, all of that's true with you. But the one thing that I was thinking about this morning and coming to speak with you today and was just really grateful for about you is you always carry a vibration of love. And that's something that has emanated off the screen from whenever I've seen you. It's something that you bring in when we're having those difficult discussions about the stuff that we feel inside us that we're perhaps not so proud of or we're trying to overcome. You've always carried this vibration of love to me. And, and so with me and my team in our correspondence with you leading up to this interview, exactly that same vibration of love has come through. So firstly, <laughs> thank you for everything that you have done and that you stand for and how you have influenced and taught so many of us over the years. We're just grateful that you're here. Thank you. Deep bow to you too. Thank you. I, that's good because, you know, I know uh, I'll tell you a funny story. <clears throat> you know, I had probably authored about six books and um, I've been a student of A Course in Miracles for a long time. And, you know, Marianne Williamson is a very devout teacher of A Course in Miracles. And I used to listen to Marianne speak and she's so monotone and so smooth. And so and I said, I want to be like that. Because, you know, five minutes in, I'm talking with my hands and, I'm <laughs> and people say, oh, you're so rough. You're so rough. But I, I finally said, you know what? I'm not Marianne Williamson. I'm Yala Van Sant. And this is who I am. And this is how I am. And so I'm just going to be what I am. <laughs> you know? So to hear that, you, you feel the love. Because I do. I love people. I love what I do. 
I love life. I love learning. I love teaching. I just, I do. I love it. And that's really clear. And, and I, I love you sharing that because I think one of the things that I know I had this and I know a lot of the people that I've worked with, if I'm helping them to take their place in the world, one of the things that we often do is we compare ourselves to other people and forget that the perfect imperfection and perfection that we are is exactly what the world needs because that gives everyone else permission. And one of the things I, I didn't know yeah. about you that I somehow had bypassed was that you were training to be a priest when you were younger. You trained as a priest. Is, is this correct? I am a priest. I am a priest. Yeah. I'm a Yoruba priest. Yeah. Uh, I, I grew up in... It's part Sorry. of my matriarchal lineage. Um, my mother was the, from Dahomey and the Yoruba people, when they migrated into uh, Nigeria, they were called the Yoruba people. So I um, started training as a priest when I was nine, but I wasn't initiated until I was 30. So I'm a seminary trained and ordained minister, and I'm a Yoruba priest and a Lakota pipe carrier. <laughs> so I'm and I'm curious, both with that, that level of devotion and service that you have, which is evident in all that you do, and we're recording this in late May, and we are a little over two months through the COVID-19 pandemic. How have you been doing as a healer who has been on call in a big way in the last few months? How are you doing with the, 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 the fire and the need that's in the world right now? Well, you know, I, I got very clear orders <laughs> to go and teach the people. So that's what I did. 49 consecutive days, I was on Facebook Live teaching people how to breathe because the COVID wants your lungs, teaching them how to eat because the COVID wants your immune system, teaching them how to pray because sometimes we don't do enough of that, sharing inspirational readings with them. So I had my marching orders of what I had to do and how I had to do it. And so I did that. And it was very, um, it was very enlightening for me because it forced me to study. It forced me to stay in my daily spiritual practice. Um, in terms of the, the energy, you know, which is why I do my new show on OWN, which is called Fear Not. We, we cannot be in fear. So I was never in fear of the virus. I did all of the things that we were told to do and I stayed home. You know what I find interesting? When I grew up, people lived at home. Now they live in the mall, the bar, the club, the restaurant. They don't live at home. So when they were forced to come home, they had problems because people don't live at home anymore. <laughs> yeah. I live at home. So I didn't mind being home. I don't ever have to go anywhere for me. So I just found it so interesting how people had so much problem being home. But not only home in the structure, in the environment, home with themselves. Because home is where the heart is. And so many people had difficulty getting still. I, that, wasn't a, that wasn't a challenge for me. Uh, because I look at everything as an opportunity. All things are lessons that God would have us learn. So what were we learning by the fact that A, we don't live at home. <laughs> and B, we had a hard time being home when we were forced to be there. What's the lesson there, man? <laughs> yeah. 
I'm curious for you, was there a kind of period in your life where you felt like you now knew how to be home with yourself? Was there a certain time or a certain moment? I don't think it was a certain moment. I grew up homeless, meaning not that I didn't have a house. I had a house, but I was homeless. What I didn't have was access to my own heart, access to my own feelings. And since that's where the home is, I lived here. You know, I thought about what to do, thought about what to say, thought about what to feel. But that's, this is not home. This is a temporary shelter. <laughs> So I had to come home to myself. And I don't think it happened all at once. I think the first thing was learning that it was okay for me to acknowledge what I was feeling. I think it was also giving myself permission to feel because I grew up in a lot of pain and dysfunction. So it was overwhelming. So rather than sit in that or live with that, I left home. <laughs> and so I grew up homeless. Um, so when I got back home, it was very difficult. It was difficult to sit in my pain and in my anger and in my dysfunction, mine, not my mother's, my father's, my own. But once I became willing to do the work, once I wanted to do the work to come home, one day I, I just got home and I was like, oh, okay, I can be here. <laughs> I can be with myself, in myself, and I can be myself. Yeah. You've been doing these Facebook Lives that you mentioned, and I, I was just sharing with you that, you know, I've been able to tune in on a couple. And one of the things that you're such a master of is being with people in the depth of their emotion and welcoming all of that emotion provided we welcome it to let it be there and then move and transform it. And one of my favorite things that I hear you say a lot, uh, I actually jotted it down here. <laughs> it was, I acknowledge the feeling, but I don't have to buy stock there. Yeah, It's so profound and so simple, but such a good reminder. Can you just elaborate on that a little yeah. bit for people? We, we think that because we feel anger that we got to buy a condo and plant a garden. No, have the anger, acknowledge it, and then move on. You got from now to 315 and then move on, okay? But the thing that happens is we won't give ourselves permission to feel the anger or we won't acknowledge the anger or the fear or the bitterness or the resentment because we make up that that's bad. And then it becomes something else. It becomes a bad attitude or it becomes depression or it becomes cancer or it becomes high blood pressure because it's in there and it's energy. The thing that I tell people always to remember, if you were to die today and I were to take you to the coroner, I would tell the coroner to cut you open. No place in there would he find anger or bitterness or resentment because it's here. Mm. And it's energy, emotions, energy that move us. So I think it's important that we give ourselves permission to acknowledge what we're feeling, even to feel what we're feeling. And, and, and don't punk out in the middle of a difficult feeling. And I define punk as poor understanding of whatever it is that negates the knowledge that the thing can bring you. That's what a punk is, <laughs> okay? That's right. 
core understanding of the anger, what it's come to teach you, what it's come to show you, what it, what you're healing. When you have a poor understanding of that, you will negate the knowledge that the emotion is bringing you. So I say, yeah, feel it. Just don't buy real estate there. Don't buy a condo. Don't plant vegetables. <laughs> it's beautiful. We're definitely living in times which are more emotional than I think any of us have ever seen on the planet. Just the level of people's emotion. And one of the things that Stephen, my husband, and I talk about a lot, and we've been talking about it a lot in recent days, is emotional awareness and emotional intelligence are vital. Like if we don't have those things, then we become hostage. And I actually asked him if he had a question for you because he loves you, loves you very much. And you know, one of the things we've been talking about recently is all of the police brutality and the racism that we're seeing up in our face in, in a seemingly a, a bigger and more consecutive public way than, than we've seen for a while. So his question, if I may ask it to you, is as a woman of color, how do you process the steady stream of violence against African-Americans in America? And how do you practice self-care? in the midst of it all? And I, I think we all need the answer to this question. Yeah, well, the first thing I do, self-care, is I really get clear about what I'm feeling because I can't have an awareness in the outer world if I don't have a connection in the inner world. So, you know, we just had this recent killing of George Floyd where, that we saw in live and living color. Well, a white police officer had his neck his knee on a black man's neck until the black man was screaming for his mother. Okay. How, where do you put that? Yeah. Where do, how, how do you process that? We, we, we're not equipped. So I had to get in there right now. What I feel is when I see this, it makes me feel so that I could dissipate the energy of those feelings. Because self-care is first. I can't write a letter on George Floyd's behalf. I can't go to a protest on, until I take care of me. So that was the first thing. And it was hard. Mm. But then I realized that watching that triggered up my stuff. Yeah. When my grandmother used to beat me and my brother would watch. When my father beat me until his pants fell off and my brother was hiding in the closet. So... I had to tr clear that out because that's not about George Floyd. That's about Ayanna Van Zandt, okay? <laughs> so let me be honest and handle my stuff. Now, when I look again and I see that, I feel sad and I feel betrayed and I feel disempowered. I feel unworthy and valueless when I see that. Now, what am I asking for? Because I'm looking at that but it's not the first time I've seen it. I saw it with Trayvon Martin. I saw it with Tamir Rice, the 14 year old shot in Ohio. I saw it with Walter Scott, the grown man running from a police officer shot in his back in South Carolina. Have I desensitized myself to this? No? Okay, so what do I wanna do? And, and I think one of the reasons that racism still exists is because Black people deny it. I mean, white people deny it. Mm. And black people are afraid to speak about it. Mm. Because then we're labeled angry. Mm. You know? Yeah. We're labeled angry. 
and we're made wrong for it. And so, and then white people, because maybe you are not a racist, maybe you're not, but understand how I feel. Don't tell me not to feel it. That's the key thing. You understand? That's not, yes, it is. It doesn't matter what your intention is. This is my experience. So hear me. My friend Danny Levin taught me, when people don't feel heard, they will yell. When they yell and it's not heard, they'll scream. When they scream and it's not heard, they'll attack. So very often because people of color, not just black, Native American, they have a little milder energy, you know? Native American, Latino, okay? We're upset about George Michael. We forgot about them brown babies down in the concentration camp. They're still there. Mm. They're still there. Mm. So what are we going to do this time? What are we asking for? So I say, take care of yourself. Process your feelings. Process what the feeling is attached to that don't have anything to do with the situation. Then get clear about what it is that you're asking for. As it relates to George Floyd, what are we asking for? as it relates to those brown babies down in, in Florida and, and Cuba, uh, uh, down in where they are. <laughs> what are we asking for? Who are we asking? Hmm. How many times are we willing to ask and what are we willing to do if the ask don't get answered? See, we stop short. What are we willing to do? And everybody doesn't have to do everything. Everybody doesn't have to do everything, but you gotta have a, a, a place that you're focusing your energy. And I think that this, particularly the racist violence is up now because we, we haven't handled it. Mm. You understand? Yeah. We have not handled it. All the way back to Emmett Till, 14 year old black man, boy, he was 14 who whistled, who they said whistled at a white woman and they drowned him and hung him. Yeah. We haven't dealt with that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. The there's a there's a book that I'm reading called White Fragility by Robin DeAngelo, and uh, you know, for me, needing an education around this stuff because uh, as someone with white privilege, there's a lot that I have been learning. I think more at speed in the last few years than I ever had to think about or learn before, and it, it was really interesting. She talks about how. Her job has been to go into organizations and companies to help to bring a shift in in systemic racism. And she talks about the defensiveness immediately comes up. And what has been interesting for me is now I've seen the way she lays it out in the book. In any conversations that I'm seeing on social media, when I get over the fact that it blows my mind that someone wants to argue with the facts about what's going on, I see people play out the exact same defensive emotion and attitude that she talks about in the book. So my hope is that especially white people, those of us that are not people of color, can be educated and changed and stand on behalf of this because it's yeah, it, 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 it defies so many words. I mean, it's heartbreaking, it's infuriating, it's so many things, but, but it has to change. And my hope is 
that we are seeing this rising right now so that we can do something about it, but it's going to take a lot of action and listening and forward movement. And how that's going to look for everybody is going to be a little bit different. But when I see people push back, when I see people fight, my work becomes having to process my emotional reaction to them fighting about it. Yes. Exactly yes. as you said, you've got to, you can't go into the fight with the same fight energy. It's, it's really complex. Yes. You know, what I want people to understand also, um, for many, many years, I lived with a certain level of beliefs and dominant negative thought patterns that I inherited. They weren't even mine. Mm-hmm. It was a cellular memory that I had to work to clear. We all have it. Why your eyebrows are like that, why your head is like that, you inherited that. Is that your grandpa's head, your grandma's head, on your father's side, your mother's side? Are those eyes, whose are they? Are they up or down or green or black or blue? You inherited that. Why do we think that we haven't inherited emotional attitudes and psychological constructs. You you understand? uh, I believe that a lot of the neo-Nazis, skinheads, whatever you want to call them, marinated in the wound that made racism, okay. It's in your cells, it's in your DNA. So I think rather than be defensive, and I say this to people of color all the time, rather than being angry, let's heal it up so that we can approach it differently. Because, and then I say to white people, listen, sometimes when we're yelling and our hands are moving, don't be afraid. <laughs> That's just who we are. I'm not Marianne Williamson. <laughs> you know, we talk loud and we use our hands. It's cultural. It's okay. But if you get afraid, then you'll get defensive. And if you get defensive, then I'll get angry because I think you don't hear me. Then I'll attack. That's how it happens. So we just have to. You know, we have to be willing to understand how each other feel. You know, I'm sure your your partner is a man of color. Mm. You know, there may be things about you as a white male in America that you would never even consider or could be felt experienced as racist. Mm -hmm. But if I bring it to you, don't tell me, no, that's not right. Well, you know, and that's what happens. Completely. And it, that, that has been the biggest education for me, actually, being with Stephen and being in, you know, having a very new experience, especially when we first moved here to just outside L.A., being nervous that he might go off in a car by himself. And if it was the wrong day and the wrong moment, and I'd never ha- I hadn't had to feel that before. And, and, and then also just certain conversations that you have with, or certain incidences that you notice that you you as a white person, if you if you aren't so up close and personal with that, you don't necessarily see or have that education. So, um, you know, my manager, we traveled together. He's a gay white man. And we were in New York City in the 21st century on 7th Avenue. I was standing here and he was standing here because we were trying to get a cab. So a cab came, I flagged it down, it pulled up, it passed me and went to him. Mm. And do you know when I walked up to get in the cab with him that the cab pulled up? They passed me, stopped for him, and then wouldn't take him because he was with me. Wow. Another time it happened, I think we were on 47th Street. Cab stopped, 
past me, he was at the corner. Uh, Pick stopped for him. I run up and he said, we're not riding with you and slammed the door. <laughs> wow. Because again, so uh, it, it happens and we, we can't act like, and you can't be guilty about it. That just gotta be, you know, uh, uh, open. You know, I have white friends and they'll tell me, they say, are you angry? Not you're angry, but are you angry? And I said, no, right now I'm just feeling passionate. I said, okay, because, you know, black people, y'all get, y'all get angry. We don't know. <laughs> you know? Mm. <laughs> so I'm glad that they can ask me. No, I'm not angry. I'm just passionate about this right now. Because on the polarity, anger is here and passion is here. But here's the big one. Rage is here and compassion is here. Mm. Compassion is the polarity of rage. Mm. So very often when people are raging, what it is they need to practice is either compassion or they need to receive compassion, mm. you know, but we're not, we're not there yet. <laughs> we're not there yet. You know, Ianla, that, that brings me to something that you said, and this was going back, I think around a year. And it was when everything, the, the Jussie Smollett incident happened. And when I first heard about Jussie who had, well, when it was first reported, it was that he had been racially attacked and there were photos of, of the violence. And, and I was horrified when I saw it and sad to say horrified. And like many, you know, it's not, it's not the first time, you know, you're like, oh, this again. Right. Um, but then I was also heartbroken when we learned that he had set up and staged the whole thing. And I, you know, between the people I know of color and the white people, there were many opinions flying around about this. I saw a clip of you and I don't know what you were doing, but I just randomly a clip of you came up and you were fantastic because in all the opinions and the uh, about that, I heard you and I'm paraphrasing, you said to the interviewer that was asking you about the incident, you said, he needs our help. Right. <laughs> he needs our compassion. He needs our love. And I was like, yes, of course. You know, because yeah. who who would enact that upon themselves if it wasn't a cry for help, an act of deep pain? So anyway, I just want to bring that up because um I loved I loved hearing you put that out there because it's more of that understanding of the deep emotional wounding underneath all of this that is is going to have to be present if we're gonna make change. You have to understand how a person is feeling and, and what they, I can't remember what the question was, but I said, if he did this, if he set this up at the base, at the core, at the root, without all of the frills and ruffles and he told a lie. How often do you lie every day? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. How often does the, leadership of this country lie every day. Mm -hmm. Why are we looking at Jesse if the leader of the country is lying? I said, so we can take it to the base and the root and the core. I said, if he did this, if he did it, we need to ask, what is it that would make a young man on a successful show, uh, uh, you know, going somewhere, what would make him do that? Was it for more fans or bigger page, what would make him do that? There's something going on there. Yeah. Do we have enough compassion to ask what's going on? 
Do we need to ask all of our entertainers what they feel that they have to do to get more ticket sales, to get, you know, is that why so many young women entertainers are half naked? Because they feel they have to do that to sell tickets? No, that's their that's only like, value. Okay. Or is that why so many of the young uh, male singers are, are doing whatever they're doing out because they feel they have to do that? Because let's tell the truth, Lee. We have a propensity for salaciousness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the wretcheder, the better. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's sleazier. Now we'll sit there and watch it in total disgust. <laughs> But we love it, you yeah. know, and then we wonder what's wrong. Yeah. What is wrong? How many times have you, do you watch, you know, I'm not pointing to one or the other. Or the, do we sit there and watch a show where the, where the cast are being violent with one another? Mm. And then we have our favorite cast member. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whether that violence is physical or throwing of something, the swearing, the calling people out their name talking about each other behind their backs. What? I can't even. But then we want to know what's wrong. Yeah. I think that the healing for me, and this is just me, this is life according to Iyamla, pay me no mind. (laughs) (laughs) We can't heal the end of the express lane until we clear the local. Express is out there in the world. Local is you. We can't heal the big stuff until we take care of the little stuff. And we can't heal the baby until we do the inner stuff. We just can't. It's true. I can't stand against racism until I heal my stuff with racism. Mm. I have been a racist. I absolutely have been a racist. And they say you, you got to have the kind of money and power to affect people's life in order to be a true racist. Well, let me just say, I was, I had racist tendencies. <laughs> yeah, I suspicious, I was suspicious of white people. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, judged them. I, I anticipated the strike. So I would make the anticipatory strike. I've done it. Thank yeah. God I'm healed. <laughs> yeah. But I've been there. Yeah. But I have the courage to tell the truth about it. Yeah. One of the things that you say, which I love and which I think you are completely embodying whenever I see you, is let's make healing contagious. Yes. <laughs> and you do. You really do. And one of the things that deeply affected me that I saw of you many years ago, and I think this was around 2010 or 2011, you had been um, hosting the Oprah show every other Tuesday for somewhat over a year, I believe. And that was where I first saw you. And you and Oprah did a show around 2011 where the two of you came together to have a conversation about where things had, there'd been a a misunderstanding between the two of you that had led to a break in your friendship. Yeah. And honestly, one of the best shows, best Oprah shows I ever saw, and just one of the best healing example conversations I ever saw was you two sitting there on these armchairs and letting us all process as a group this fracture in your relationship that when the two of you were able to say, oh, well, this is what I was thinking, this is what I was feeling, and you both just acknowledged you loved each other, you were sorry, it was, it was just beautiful. And I, at that time, I hadn't seen much like that. 
So I also just want to shout out to you that as well as helping, as well as doing your work in the world and, and walking your talk, you walked your talk very publicly, both of you in that show. Yeah. I'm curious, do many people talk to you about that show? Because it's well, one not of the- anymore, but they used to, you know, and there were those that disagreed with it and thought she was wrong, but that wasn't going to create healing. And it, it, that show was 11 years in the making. I left, I left uh, the Oprah Winfrey show in 2000 and 2000. Yeah. And we didn't, we had that conversation in 2011 during the 25th, uh, you know, when her show was going down. And um, I was really grateful to have the opportunity to be a demonstration of how to clear and a breakdown simply by conversation. You know, and and neither one of us were fighting to be right. Uh, neither one of us held. You know what? Neither one of us had a knee on the other one's neck. Yeah, yeah. Neither one of us. No. We didn't have a knee. We weren't holding our position, trying to force the other one to do what we wanted them to do. She had saw it her way. I saw it my way. There were things that she assumed that I knew that I didn't knew, know. And there were things that I assumed were appropriate that just weren't appropriate. But we assumed a lot of stuff and then there were people between us. And so it wasn't until we could sit next to each other and i never forget, this was the moment of healing. She said, I can't remember what it was. And she said, what did you think? I used to leave the stage and give you the stage. Yeah. And I said to her, I just wanted you to like me. And she said, well, why do you think I didn't like you? You know, and I said, I didn't know you wanted me. I thought you wanted the work. She said, I got it. Yeah. But it was my unworthiness, my belief in my own unworthiness that made it about if she really liked me, I can go there and do this for her. I can do this, but she don't really want me. Mm-hmm. You know, because warning me looked a certain way. Yeah. We were going to go to dinner. We were going to have lunch. We were going to chit chat and talk. That's Oprah Winfrey. She ain't gotten to chit chat and talk with me. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what I thought it needed to look like. And because it didn't look like that, I discounted the fact that the most famous woman on television was giving me her stage. I couldn't even see the blessing, couldn't even receive the blessing because I had my knee on my own throat. Yeah. Saying that it had to look this way. That was my position. And then because it didn't, I just discounted it. It was a powerful lesson. Took me 11 years to learn that lesson. Mm -hmm. 11 years. Sometimes you got to be in special ed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was, a, it was, it remains to this day, a powerful teaching moment to me, that episode. And, and like I said, it's still imprinted in me because even though I had been in lots of self growth workshops at the time, which I had taken myself to, and at that point was also, also leading them. Uh, it was just beautiful to watch that holding. And it's a little bit like earlier on when you walked us through the question that came from Stephen about, well, first I have to self-care and you showed us, okay, these are my feelings and this is how I'm organizing them. And then this is how I direct my energy. That was what watching that show got to be, especially as we had seen you both in your teaching mastery and we had received the benefit of your teaching mastery. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, the teachers are now going to teach us in a different way. Yeah. And uh, it was fantastic. And it's 
but I, but I so get what you, I so, I so also connected with you on that. They wanted me for my skill. They didn't want me for me. They wanted me for what I could do for them. And yet it's funny because I, I've had that disease in my own mind in the past, not so much now, but I used to. Yeah. Yet when I think back to you, while I always admire your skill when I see you at work on camera, like I said, it's the love I remember. It's the vibration I remember. It's not the doing. Because there are many skilled people. You know, skill is, you know, it's around. Right. But when you combine skill with, an, with a powerful emanating vibration, is right. it the skill you remember or is it the way that that person made you feel? Okay. I think it's the way that person makes you feel yeah. that you remember. You know, oh. And and the thing is, um, and I, I mean, I learned so many lessons during that time. And one of them was me doubting my own worthiness. Mm. How do you go from being a poor black girl in the projects with three babies by three different men, mm. sitting across from the most powerful woman on television? Mm. There were so many, there was such a gap in my learning and my experience that I couldn't even receive the good. I couldn't receive it. Hmm. And I, I hadn't done. So that's why our self-work is so important. Yeah. So important. I hadn't done the work. My life took off hmm. and, and I was gone in part because of Oprah, in part because of the work I was doing in the world. Hmm. You know, Oprah didn't come to my house and knock on my door. She heard about me because of the work I was doing in the world, but I still hadn't done the depth of inner work required. Mm. You understand? I I'm do. a masterful writer. I can write anything. I'm a, I, I can write anything. So I had wrote these exquisitely beautiful books and, and hadn't done the depth of work required for me to stand as the book. Mm. I could teach what was in the book. Yeah. But I couldn't stand as the book. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, compl- I, 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 I relate. And I'm somewhere on that journey myself with my own work, for sure. Yeah. See, today, I don't ever have to write another book. I can stand as a yamla. Yeah. I can stand as a yamla. I don't apologize anymore. I'm different. I ain't Deepak. I ain't Marianne. I ain't Wayne Dyer. I ain't Eckhart. You know, I'm black and I talk with my hands and sometimes I talk loud. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, but I don't apologize for it anymore. And I used to. Yeah. Because, you know, it's hardly, if you look around the spiritual self-help world mm. outside of the church, who do you see that looks like me? Stephen and I have this conversation all the time. <laughs> we talk, no, we do. We, like me? Yeah. Exactly. So what I learned is I'm at the head of the line mm-hmm. and it's okay. Mm-hmm. I don't have to be behind anybody else. I am behind many people. I'm behind Dr. Maya Angelou. I'm behind Toni Morrison. I'm behind Sonia Sanchez. I'm behind uh, uh, Nikki Giovanni. I'm behind these people. They stand in front of me energetically, but I'm at the head of this line. So there's nobody, you know, because there's nobody in front of me. So I can either take that to my ego and make it that I'm this, or I can say, let me pave a way so that others can come and be who they are on this line. Yeah. You do your work 
for so many people. You're the head of this tribe that in a way is what I, what I see when you talk about what you just said. I'm like, yep, Ianla is there as the head of her tribe. And you have a really big family. And I know you take care of many of the members of your family in so many ways. And I'm just curious, especially when one of the first questions I asked you is how you've been showing up to serve this last couple of months. How do you take care of filling yourself back up again? And what does that look like today? What, how does Iyanla reset and restore so that you can continue to be balanced in your giving? Well, since the COVID, it, were, it has a lot to do with late night snacking. <laughs> <laughs> and what are the snacks of late choice? Late night snacking is a terrible thing. I didn't know I was a late night snacker. I did not know because I'm usually asleep. I'm not up late at night. But because I've taken naps in the day, I'm up in late night snacking, doing all kinds right. of just, oh my God, it's just horrifying. <laughs> so what are the snacks of choice, Ian? Oh God. Well, right now, this week, <laughs> oh my God, it's the Hagen dazs coffee ice cream bars with the chocolate-covered almonds on them. Oh. They were three for ten in the supermarket. Well, you can't say no. I'm as Stephen will attest, but I'm a bargain hunter. Okay, it's disgusting yeah. that they would put three boxes with three <laughs> bars each on sale. Then they know I was coming. So that's what it's been this week. Last week it was buttered popcorn. Okay, you buy the movie theater butter popcorn and then you melt some butter and put it on there it's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> the week before that it was just random one night i was in the kitchen i was it was horrible it was horrible i heated up my pretzels so i could dip them in the nacho cheese <laughs> oh, I, then i had to go into recovery <laughs> So there was about three or four weeks in there. I could not do no late night snacking because I wasn't going to get my behind in my clothes. So I couldn't do that. So that's, yeah. But this week is Haagen-Dazs coffee ice cream bars. Yeah, that's what it is this week. And I will bet you that everybody watching and listening to this could now name what their thing has been okay. since all of this went down. It's like, I don't think any of us have got away with it. But not having something that we've lent on. Yeah. I know. When I was doing the random snack and it just, when I recognized, oh, why are you heating up the pretzel? You're heating <laughs> the cheese. Why are you heating up the pretzels? <laughs> so that's one thing right now during the COVID. But I have a very solid, solid, strong, supportive community of women mm. and men mm. that surround me. Mm. I have a very loving village mm. and that village takes care of me. Today I was doing this Facebook live and I said on the Facebook live, I need somebody to come get my puppy because I can't leave this to go get that. And one of my village members came, got the puppy, fed the puppy. Somebody else heard it, brought my dinner. <laughs> so I don't have to do that. I can call any one of 40 people and say, Help me see this rightly. I need to pray. Yeah. I have two prayer calls every day, one at six and one at 730, so that I keep my spirit right. And then I have learned how to do what brings me joy. Hmm. You know, scrapbooking brings me joy. But now I'm out of scrapbooking. I'm in the beating. I'm beating now. Now I'm beating. And then yesterday I was looking at the video. I think I'm going to take up quilting. <laughs> 
and I sew because I'm a creative. So I always have to be using my hands, but doing what brings me joy, not to sell it, not to make money, not to do just because it brings me joy. Law and order brings me joy. And it's on from Sunday at 11 a.m. until one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> oh, yes. Lord, the original. Okay. I love me some Jack McCoy. And so I can be as highly spiritually enlightened as possible, but I got to have a dose of Jack. Okay. Yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> but that's so it's one of, I don't know if you get this, but one of the things that I've found that people will assume about you if you work in the spiritual field or the self-growth field is that you're always meditating, you're always doing yoga, and you only eat raw food. And they're always a little bit surprised when they hear about the show you're watching or, you know, and it's like, we're all, we're all human. We're all here having the human experience too. And that's, that's how we ground it. That's how yeah. we get to create some of the changes that we're talking about on this call. If we can't embody it and bring it through the human, what are we doing? I don't know. Listen, I am allergic to exercise. I'm allergic to it. <laughs> Do love me some yoga and some Tai Chi, but I am allergic to exercise. I got a, a, a bike and I got a thing, whatever that thing. I don't even know elliptical. what it's called. Elliptical. Is it the elliptical? I don't even know what it's called. That's how okay. I it. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a treadmill and I'll be right out here on the floor doing yoga. I'm allergic to exercise. I'm human. We all have our our, uh, you know, our places where we need help. I'm trying to get better because I'm getting older and I, I got to keep my heart up. And then with the COVID lurking around, trying to jump in on me from the trees or wherever it's coming from, I don't know where it's coming from. Where is it lurking? Oh my God. I told my friend, I said, listen, I'm going to put on a mask. I'm going to put some flaps on my ears. I'm going to wear my glasses and a hat because <laughs> I don't know where the COVID is coming <laughs> They can tell me what they want to tell me about a vaccine. Right now, I'm protecting myself, okay, from everything. It ain't getting in my ears, my eyes, my nose, nothing, you know. But we got to be human. Yeah, for that, sure. That's, that's what, why we're here. For and we sure. have to enjoy being human. I love being human. And you know what I love most about being human? That I'm crazy as hell. <laughs> I love. I don't experience you that way. What oh. I love about you is the aspect of your crazy, which yeah. is which I think is like a beautiful garnish to the plate of Ianla. Yeah. And there's this beautiful wild. So yeah, I see I the thing. The reason my crazy is uh, uh, undetectable is because I'm okay with it. Yeah, I don't have to work to hide it. I don't have to work to uh, make you believe it ain't there. I am crazy as hell. <laughs> and I never know when crazy is going to get me. I could be driving along, listening to my music, and somebody cut me off and I'll go crazy. Okay? Or I'll go somewhere and expecting to have something. Like, I can't tell you the number of times I was in the supermarket just going crazy because they had no toilet paper. And I'm like, what? I don't understand. Where is the toilet paper? Obviously, this is the cure to the COVID. And that's why everybody got some. <laughs> <laughs> i been eating toilet paper stew, I think. That was how it looked those first few weeks. I know. But it's still, some of the stores still don't have any. I know. But my point is, you know, just be okay. Yeah. Be okay. I can acknowledge my crazy. You don't ever have to tell me about it. Yeah. 
<laughs> one of the things, and I'm, I'm, I know we're, we're pretty much at the end of our time, but one thing I'm curious to ask you about is one of the things that has come up for a lot of people during this COVID time is transformation in their minds about what they might want to do in the future, which I think is tricky because I think actually most people are just trying to deal with what's going on. Yeah. And I know you've been really busy with your serving and your daily service, but I'm curious, has anything risen up for you in the last couple of months about your what you'd like to do next in the oh, future? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I'm very clear. I want to leave television. I'm real clear about that. Ah. I'm very clear about it because I've experienced being able to teach from a more authentic place where I don't have to worry about lights and sound. I got, you know, I got a little ring lights. You see the little ring in my eye. Yeah, very cool. I like the ring light <laughs> reflection. It's good. You know, in my living room, uh, I don't have to talk to five people to prepare going into the commercial, coming out of the, co I don't have to do that. I can be right here on Facebook Yeah. right now, dressed yeah. on the top, naked on the bottom. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Or when my puppy comes by, pick her up. You know, I don't have to have that false image because those who control the words and images control the minds of the people. Mm. And a lot of the things that we see on the, on the television or in the movies, it's, it's just not real. Now, I'm proud of the fact that Iyanla Fix My Life is real. We don't script. What you see, you see. But there's a lot that you don't see that gets cut down into the 48 minutes that you do see mm. that could leave you with some impressions about your healing that need to be, uh, uh, he, you know, need to be addressed. So I'm very clear about that. I, I want to leave television. I want to, I don't, I don't, I, I want to leave it. I will always support own, but I don't want to do that anymore. And I also don't want to do it because it limits my time, mm. limits my time. You know, when I'm traveling and when I'm here and there and I, I, I'm up five days a week, you know, in makeup at seven, on the set at eight, working with the people to nine, 10 o'clock, only to go home and sit down and shove two pieces of lettuce in my mouth to get up. I, I don't want to yeah. do that. I want my freedom. I want to be free to do it when I want to do it, the way I want to do it. So I'm leaving enslavement in the COVID. I'm not. Yes. I'm leaving that. That's great. Because what what's true for you is you've built such a community and you have such a connection with that community. It, it, why I get excited hearing you say that, even though that's the vessel through which I first encountered you, is this is a time where you can do what you want to do and use your own ability to put yourself out into the world the way you want to and serve the way you want to. So yeah. I'm excited for you. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And do you have any more writing? You said that you aren't going to, you said you have those books, but I know writing is your passion, is in your blood. Do you have any more writing coming up? No, writing isn't my passion. Teaching is my passion. Ah. So I, what I write are the textbooks for my curriculum. Ah. And when I'm writing right now, two things that I'm writing. One is this whole notion of commitment and accountability. We are not accountable for what we think, what we do, and what we say. And therefore we are putting out into world energies 
that come back on us and we're shocked and horrified. <laughs> so I'm writing a book on accountability, what that really means to be accountable for what you're thinking, because it's coming back. Hmm. What you're feeling, because you're creating, and what you're saying and doing. And you know the beauty of social media is that we have this forum to do this. Otherwise, I'd have to be in Malibu. And right now, I'm I'm here with you. But the but the tragedy of social media is that it's given people license to put stuff out and say stuff that they can't be held accountable for. Mm. That you can destroy somebody's career on the internet, somebody's life. You can divorce somebody. Come on. You got to be accountable. And the other, the other thing that I really am starting to download, download, because that's how I get my books, is about rites of passage for women. You know, as a Native American woman, we, we function in clans. And the clan is like your 20s, that's a clan. Your 30s, that's a clan. Your 40s, that's a clan. So women in those age groups right, are, are, are do certain things. And, you know, if you get into your 30 clan and you ain't married, people are looking at you out of one eye, you know. <laughs> but what nobody teaches us as women is that there's a gift, a blessing, a lesson, and a, 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 a the gift, the lesson, the blessing, and the challenge in each one of those ages. And so many of us don't complete our 20 clan and we end up in 40 acting like we're 30. Mm. Or we end up in 60 acting like we're 20. You understand? So I want to teach that medicine. I don't see any place in the world where women are being taught about women's medicine. Mm. And before I leave this planet, I want to do that because so many of us as women are out of order. We function like men. Hmm. We think like men. We live like men. We speak like men. We act like men because we don't know what our woman's medicine is. Hmm. So those are the two things that I want to write in between watching Jack, beating, and eating ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) When you were saying earlier about owning your crazy, you know, I didn't say this to you, but the the thought that was going, the intuition that was going through my head and how I see you is, the crazy aspect is required for anyone who is a shaman and a medicine person and you to me are a medicine woman like you are a modern day energy medicine woman so i think not even energy bush i'm a bush woman bush woman (laughs) bush woman i'm a bush woman yes give me some herbs and a ceremony a ritual a candle and some incense and i'm good to go (laughs) fantastic well the book that you're talking about is really needed and that 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 guidance for that that period, and I would say men are going to need something like that too, because I think we we so I look at this culture and I think we're sorely lacking in guidance for those wisdom elder years, which really should be the best years where you can be giving the most. And there's this there's this denial uh, in this culture certainly around aging, so. Yeah. It's beautiful. I'm, I'm really glad you're doing it. And Ianla, thank you so much for sharing yourself, your work and your wisdom with us today. It's been a real honor to have you on the show. Deep bow, deep bow of love to you. Take good care. <laughs> 
Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Impact the World. And if you want to go deeper and more in depth with my work, you should check out my members group, The Portal. You can find it at my website, leeharrisenergy.com or visit theportal.world.